Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt speaking. Today, I have Tom Randall on the show. You may remember Tom as one of the wide boys from the Real Rock Film Tour several years ago. You may also recognize him as one of the founders of Lattice Training, which is one of the largest coaching collectives in the business and one of the best training resources for climbers out there. I highly recommend checking them out if you haven't. So this was a very fun conversation for me. We geeked out about training for sure, but we didn't go into specific details too much. Tom is an excellent coach and a high-level climber himself, and he's worked with a lot of people. And a lot of what he had to say was more about the things we tend to miss on a big-picture level. And I thought it was really helpful to hear his perspective. I certainly took a lot away from this conversation. So you won't come away from this episode with a new magical hangboard protocol, but you will come away with a better understanding of how all this stuff fits together for us as athletes and some of the things that you might be missing in your own training from mindset to how you structure your training year to neglecting your shoulder strength. There are a lot of things that come into play when it comes to something as simple as finger training. So I hope this episode is helpful. I only had Tom for about an hour, but he's willing to do another round sometime. So I'd love your feedback on this episode. And if you have all sorts of burning questions for Tom, feel free to send them over to me and we can save them for next time. I definitely hope to have him back on. As I said, I really enjoyed talking with Tom. And be sure to check out the show notes for this episode if you want to deep dive into any of this stuff I added a lot of great resources over there, so be sure to check those out. I have another follow-up coming out later this week, this time with William Woodward from way back in episode three. You can find him at WhereToWilly on Instagram. Will is one of my favorite photographers, and he's a good friend of mine. I sat down with William in St. George, Utah in the van about a month ago. We stayed up late and drank a little too much whiskey and shot the shit for over an hour, and it was super fun. So if you want to hang out with us as we ramble on and hear some great stories from Willie, be sure to check that one out. I'll put out a teaser on Thursday that you can listen to, and you can sign up for Patreon to get the full thing. Access to follow-ups is just $5 per month, and it also gets your questions featured in episodes like this one. And it really helps the show. And I always put a link right there in your podcast app. So signing up is easy. It just takes a few minutes. And you can cancel at any time. And as always, I really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Tom Randall. All right. Well, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm very excited for this conversation. I was pouring over some of my notes this morning and some of my old 
hangboard logs and benchmarks from tests I've done over the years. And it got me really, really excited to dive into uh, the geeky stuff with you today. <laughs> so I think we'll jump right in. I mean, uh, people listening, many people listening will remember you from the Wide Boys and from Real Rock 7. And, uh, you know, I have this image in my mind when I think of you, of you and Pete just doing laps and laps on this horizontal off with crack in your in your cellar uh, for years on end and then coming to the States and doing the century crack and, and things like that. And of course, there's this whole other side now where people now will likely be more familiar with you with lattice training and what you've built there. And I really want to just dive straight into that after one question, I have one question before that, and this is actually a listener question, and it goes back to that cellar and the the off with crack you built in your in your cellar. This is a question from Matt. He writes, "Tom, how many water pipes or electrical wires have you punctured down in your cellar?" Zero, actually. <laughs> um, mainly because in the cellar, there's very very little proper insulation. So where you have the rafters and people often stick, you know, all the, the heat retaining parts for their house, we've never really done the best job on it. So it's very easy to see all the pipes and electrical. And therefore, it's actually pretty easy to avoid going through anything. Even though I know my cellar looks like a complete shambles and <laughs> I definitely would have broken something, but it's been surprisingly okay. <laughs> so before we started recording here, you gave me a little tour of Lattice and uh, all the training boards you have in this amazing facility you have. Do you still use the cellar? Do you still train down there? Yeah, all the time. Um, it goes in and out of phases of how much emphasis there is in this. I would say nowadays, if, if I'm going through a heavy training period, uh, four cracks that is, then it's probably about three times a week that I'll go down there. Um, sometimes two when I'm getting back into it and, you know, the body just hurts from doing a lot of the cellar stuff, but other times I might not go down the cellar for two months ish, but yeah, during periods where we're actually trying to prepare for something, me and Peter down there pretty frequently, me more because it's my house, but I mean, he does have keys to my house and <laughs> to my cellar. So <laughs> I love that. I love that it didn't all end with the century crack. That's, I don't know why, but that makes me really happy to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got better and better down there and we're more and more committed to it. I mean, I built That's an great. extension on our house and put another three rooms extension to the cellar. Amazing. <clears throat> Amazing. So, uh, okay. I want to dive straight into the lattice training stuff. I have so many questions about, about finger strength in particular, and you know, not that the world needs another podcast episode about finger strength, but as I was kind of thinking about things this morning, I just got really excited. And, and that's really where most of my burning questions are. And I can't think of anyone that, that knows more about finger strength who has has seen more of the data and who has more direct experience themselves than you. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, I got a question from Felix that I want to ask because this one feels like a really uh, obvious transition here. And Felix, I guess, is a customer of you guys on one of your premium plans. And he had really great things to say about working with you guys. But his question was, how did you come up with the idea of climbing assessments and a business creating training plans? It was clearly missing in the climbing sport 
and it is a logical progression of our sport, but the personal connection is not very apparent considering your background as a trad and crack climber. Okay, good question. Um, before I answer that, I'm actually just going to say something to follow up from what you just said there about like finger strength and uh, what, what I know about finger strength. So I just want to like just hammer this home that I think what is really nice what you say about um, what I have in terms of understanding data and and all the kind of really like ultra geeky, more science, science-based stuff with finger strength. What I do try and always remind people is that this stuff comes across on social media and websites strong because it's easy to explain. But I would also like to always try and remind people that as a good coach, it actually comes coupled with experience and seeing lots and lots of scenarios with which this stuff plays out in reality because there's a value to science and theory and data, but there's also a very, very high value to experience and how it you know, plays out in a practical manner in real life and how you marry those two together. Mm. And I always wanted to like try and remind people that there's that balance between it because I get a lot of focus, especially from male climbers, that they <laughs> just want to look at numbers and data. And I'm like, it's cool, but remember this stuff's got to be used as well. And just because this person here that you saw some data with looks exactly like you in every possible way. Maybe they're even born on the same day as you. The data <laughs> does not quite work in that way. So I just like mm. try to remind people there's a balance with this, just as my little like, soapbox right at the start. Um, okay, so in relation to how it all started was, um, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I'm going to say somewhere between 12 to 13 years ago, um, I was working as a coach and manager of the GB climbing team. And I was going in and out of management and coaching with the team and seniors and juniors. And what I noticed was I was getting really frustrated with the disconnect between doing a load of training with people and wanting them to get better and better each season, but having no ability to be able to kind of benchmark or test whether one, they were matching up to what they thought their competition performance was going to be that year. And two is how the formula or the method you use for training for that season was actually playing out in terms of objective results, because what we were doing until that point, and you know, it's continued much to a greater part since then is people would do a training season and then they would go on a trial, uh, you know, a competition training and try and get up on site two 513s and flash a, a 514, for example. One day, one circumstance and say, now mm. this is a re you know, reflection of how successful I've been with our training. I didn't like that. I wanted to create something more objective and say, physically, what has actually specifically occurred here. So I just went down this whole route of like, how do you performance profile? What matters? How does strength blend with endurance? What happens with power endurance in the middle? Is data reliable? What are the good metrics? What works? What doesn't? And I just went into that hole for like, well, 12 plus years, I guess, in a way. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's it's amazing to see what's grown out of that over all these years and to follow your journey with Lattice. I remember a story that I would love to hear you fact check and, and then fill in the gaps. I, I don't remember where I read this or saw this. I think it was in a, an article with you or a blog that you posted years ago, but I remember a story about 
meeting Ollie Tour and taking him down into the cellar. I think you were just hanging out and, you know, having a party or something like this. It wasn't necessarily a training day, but you went down to the cellar and you got him on on a hangboard rung or an edge and just started adding more and more weight to this guy and you were blown away at just how strong his fingers were. And it seems like that led to a pretty significant shift as far as your understanding of, of what the forearm was capable of as far as generating force and, and things like that. Am I remembering that correctly? And, and can you fill in the gaps of that story? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's got the essence of what happened. So um, <laughs> I kind of knew Ollie first through testing him because he was working as a coach in a commercial climbing gym that I own uh, like an hour away from Sheffield. And somehow we just got chatting and I asked him to come and do some of our tests because I, I thought he looked quite strong. And really what happened was that we we did the testing and yeah, he got higher and higher on these scores. And I think he he broke all of the kind of testing records until that point that I'd ever uh, sort of collected. But then at the same time, I put him through the full profile and he had some of the worst endurance and efficiency scores that I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it okay. blew my mind because I was going, I don't get how this is possible that someone can be so far off one end of the spectrum on strength and so far on the other end in terms of efficiency and how they apply this to rock. Like he had 9A finger strength, but he could barely climb like 13A. In fact, Hmm. I'm not sure he'd even red pointed one up at that point. Like he would really struggle with it. And so I was fascinated with whether you could basically change someone like that and make them really efficient and use that finger strength properly. And how could it be done and how long did it take? Hmm. And that was really kind of where it all happened. Then I got to know him properly as a coach um, et cetera. And I saw there was some, you know, something really unique about him as a person and individual. And that's where we kind of got into the whole thing of, you know, starting up lattice properly and, and joining forces. But yeah, that's the kind of real, real story was obscene strength, obscene inefficiency. <laughs> that's so interesting. It's, it sounds like, or at least from what I remember, you guys made an amazing pair because you were on the flip side of that. And it sounds like, yeah, thinking back, I can remember you writing about how he helped you kind of shift your paradigm and remove a lot of the volume that you were including in your training. And I remember a photo of you, you know, at the tail end of that on like a beast maker center rung, you know, in a little ball hanging from one hand with a with a weight in your other hand. And it's like, oh, wow, he figured out how to get really strong. That's amazing. So I'd love to hear both sides of that story like what were some of the things i guess how did it go with ollie you know how far has his efficiency come and and has he been able to improve in that and then i'd love to hear what were some of the key things that you worked on with him and then on the flip side of that maybe next we can get into how did he help you streamline your training to really get your fingers stronger than they'd ever been before yeah okay yes yeah, so good question um uh, and i think it's a really worthwhile story to kind of go through because I think a lot of people out there can really learn lessons from this mm. um, and I suppose in the forefront of all of it I want to just really remind everyone that's listening here that the absolute key here is that you can change essentially your you know your physiology and 
your climbing strengths, weaknesses. But I'm going to say it's like a massive buzz if it's shouting at you. You <laughs> must give it patience. Mm. You can't solve this stuff in six months or even a year with the best training methods you've ever seen in the world. Like even <laughs> if you got given the secret formula in air quotes to how to get fit, you can't achieve incredible results in one single year, even if you're getting it exactly right. Even if you're a monk dedicating your whole life to training, you can make a big impact and more of an impact than someone who's carrying a, you know, a 40 hour job, a 40 hour week job, but don't expect miracles in one year. This stuff does take time. Mm. So on Ollie's front, one of the key things was that he had no, no volume in, in his training uh, at all. He, he just had intensity um, and he didn't have a great deal of what I would term kind of density with that. So intensity, but also a reasonable volume in that intensity. So working on that fatigue element and build building fatigue resistance. And when I say fatigue resistance, there's a physiological part of that, but there's also a psychological kind of comfort and acceptance and becoming familiar with how fatigue feels. Because I remember doing early sessions with him and he just still seemed so freaked out by being tired or being pumped. And I go, don't worry, this is okay. Just relax into it and accept that this is, you know, just a sign of fatigue and impending failure. But don't panic right now and just immediately jump off. Start hmm. to push through it and start to develop a comfort with it over time. Um, and I would say for Ollie, it took three years, I would say, to have a proper dent on his fitness element. Wow. And probably more like five years to really turn it around where I was, you know, out at our local sport climbing crag. I don't know if it's five years later, maybe it was actually four years later. Um, but there, you know, holding his ropes and watching him climb a really long HC. So that's 14B and shaking out all the way, looking really comfortable, doing multiple reps on a 514 across the day and going, that's just insane. I mean, I just never would have thought I'd see this guy <laughs> get that level of efficiency. Seeing was what I saw in the first instance, mm. but it was just pure consistency and graft in the right direction of looking after the part of his profile, essentially, in his climbing that was just unattended for 10 years and putting the time in it. And there wasn't any kind of like magical trick that we used with Ollie, really. It was just changing his habits, doing it long-term, being really consistent with it, and mixing in with that, the physical part, and also, I guess, I think a big part of it was also mental as well for Ollie to be able to become comfortable with that part of the climbing. And, you know, like any boulderers that have only ever done four to eight moves in their life, they're not that familiar with failure and fatigue from a, you know, a, a metabolic sense rather than just a really hard move. Hmm. So that's, yeah, that's why I say it went with Ollie and that's how long it took-ish. Um, for me, on the other hand, I would say I had a much, much faster adaptation to the change in method. And I would say I've seen somewhat similar 
patterns in the other clients that we and I have worked with over the years. And, and I would say also from the going from ultra strong to long endurance has also taken a long time with our clients over the years of that same type of climber. Um, Interesting. But on the front of when you have someone who has got a long history of climbing, like I, I'd already climbed a lot of years and I've tried reasonably hard things for a number of years was that for me, it was once I dropped out a vast amount of the volume for my training. So that whenever I did sessions, I could do very, very high quality sessions rather than always being fatigued in sessions and just being very comfortable with that. I'd always seem to think like, if I wasn't tired and knackered from a session at all points through the entire session, I wasn't working hard. <laughs> and then secondly, until that point, I never, ever looked after any proper strength and conditioning in the shoulders. Mm. And I was just, I was just like a big, weak, floppy, you know, I call them <laughs> like a, a sack of potatoes. Like you just look at my shoulders <laughs> and what they did when I climbed and they were just all over the place. I was just like, turning and rolling around my skeleton and body in this highly efficient way, which only worked for certain climbing moves and styles. I just mm. kind of hang and roll my way up routes. But if a route didn't suit that, I wouldn't climb it and I'd be, I'd lose like five grades. So that I would say I turned it around in probably just six months and had a, a big change on that. And in that period, I'd, I'd say I more or less went from kind of like V8-ish bouldering on face climbing, like my anti-style, to V11 and went from, you know, single arm hangs were on a, you know, 20 mil edge with vast amounts of help to body weight-ish and being able to, you know, like lock off properly, be able to do reasonably decent stuff on a TRX and a bar. And I was, I was terrible before that. And, hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that, that really cha changed it. And there was a mental element to that as well. I wasn't comfortable with not being exhausted all the time. I wasn't familiar with ending sessions early and trying things outside where every move I would basically fall off it multiple times before I would get a link on a boulder problem. Mm. I, I thought falling, falling off a move three times probably meant that you weren't ever going to get up it. <laughs> right. But that's changed change stuff around. Yeah, that, that is so interesting to hear. So would you say that as far as physical adaptations or physical, um, maybe gaps in your physical preparation to that point, was it more about the shoulder strength than about the, the fingers? Was that kind of the biggest weak link for you? No, I think it was a combination. Uh, okay. I, hit, I hit two sweet spots at exactly the time, which is probably why my improvements were so good um, in my particular case. I was extreme of skeleton style climber, roll around the shoulders, twist into everything. And I was an extreme of very high volume, do everything to total exhaustion all the time for 10 years. And I need to change that habit. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um on that note, were there any, are there any key, I mean, climbers, we're all so familiar with, uh, you know, hangboard protocols. There's so many out there to try. I'm sure that they all work uh, to some extent, but I haven't heard too much about shoulder exercises aside from, you know, some things that we do on rings and lock-off training and things like that. Are there any 
exercises specifically for the shoulder that really helped you turn that around? Um, a lot of, for me, was done on uh, TRX or rings, and that worked really well. I, I think I could have achieved it still um, with uh, weights in the gym, um, but I had a background of doing quite a lot of weights training during my teenage years. So I think I was fairly adapted to that in some ways, and I'd learned how to be efficient with a set of weights and roll around the weights to suit me. Uh, whereas I hadn't spent any time again on rings or TRX until that point. And Ollie was, you know, a high level national level gymnast mm. and really schooled me on that front. And for most climbers out there, I think it's getting this appreciation of how good are you at rolling and pushing the shoulder forward? So that sort of anterior tilt and roll versus how you can bring your shoulders back and down so that posterior sort of tilt roll direction of the shoulders and being a climber who's able to do both mm. in volume and intensity. And you look at most climbers and they will tend to default to a particular uh, sort of way, method, sort of manner of moving. Mm. And naturally you will find some climbers are quite blended and they're fairly in the middle and they won't get great results out of doing loads of that type of work. But there's definitely certain types of climbers who are real end of the spectrum on either front or back, you know, twist versus roll square climbing. And those people find a lot of benefits out of doing that kind of work. So it depends on who you are as an individual. Do you have an exercise that you, you'd be willing to share for the rings in particular for each of those shoulder positions, you know, for anterior and posterior, if, if climbers out there wanted to try both and kind of feel out which one they feel weaker at to focus on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think, um, uh, and also there's another thing to say is that um, and I, I like to think we try and put this out on a reasonable amount on lattice as well, is that there are no, you know, secret pills, silver bullets mm. for climbing. It's all a tool. It's all a method and it's how you blend it and use it across a training cycle or a training lifetime of an athlete. So I'm always happy to like literally talk about any method, share, whatever, mm. because it's not like... I'm not that coach that goes, no, this is my secret. I can't tell you this. Um, <laughs> so TRX and rings, I would say go to exercise. As long as you have some base familiarity with how to, you know, actually use TRX and rings and hold your position, the position of your body in an appropriate way is eyes, Y's and T's with both bent and straight arm position in a prone. So facing forward or a rear supine position is a great place to start to understand how your shoulders work um, and start to build some kind of conditioning um, into your shoulders in those positions. And I think it's important to look at both bent and straight arm positions because there's differences in how you load uh, your shoulders um, and your core in both of those positions. Mm. Once you've done that and you start to get familiar, understand how you um, you know respond to that, is that had any benefit in your training? I would start to look at some exercises where you create some complexity or asymmetry. So you're moving between stressing hard on the left or the right side of the body with some sort of form of twist or um, extra load on one side of the body. So things like, you know, archer rows, for example, or uh, modified low row exercises on uh, a TRX um, or a rings um, exercise. And that's like the next level of building up um, to be able to kind of get benefits that play back into training and climbing. Mm. 
Great. Do you, I'm curious, do you have a video that highlights some of this stuff that I could share for people in the show notes? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's a fair bit on, uh, like our YouTube channel's got loads of training exercise on there. Um, but I would say like, if you really just wanted to find a simple resource to go and find a load of exercises that we do with clients a lot, is just simply to go to the crimped app mm. uh, and you can find on that that has like a whole strength and conditioning section on there. And I'm 99% certain that stuff like prone and supine eyes wise tees, those kind of exercises on rings TRX are in the app and they can just look it up and follow it on there and they can have, you know, fill in a logbook and everything and start track it. Perfect. Yeah. I've, I've actually used that app in the past and it's, it's great. It's really well built, uh, really easy to follow. And uh, yeah, that's a great resource. I'll link to that in the show notes for people. So, you know, your, your caveat at the beginning of this conversation is very well taken, but I do still want to ask some, uh, some geeky kind of self-serving finger strength questions. <laughs> and I don't, they, do. they always say that. <laughs> Uh, I don't expect you to remember this, but I actually emailed back and forth with you a little bit in 2016. I do is... remember it. You do? Yeah. Oh, right on. Okay, cool. So this when, is when I got when I got your email setting me up for this Zoom link. Yeah. I was like, ah, I know who this is. <laughs> so yeah. So to fill in some context for people. I reached out to you and to Lattice in 2016, and a lot has changed since then as far as Lattice goes. It was really, it's really funny to look back. I was rereading those emails this morning, but I was really interested in testing my finger strength and seeing where it stacked up relative to my climbing ability and, you know, based on the all the assessments and data that you guys have gained, because I had the suspicion that my finger strength really was my weak link, specifically when it comes to pretty decent holds, but a lot of weight on your hands. Um, I'm, I'm better at holding on to small holds when I can keep more weight on my feet. I've done a lot of climbing at Smith Rock, but man, if you put me on a 45 degree board on, on one pad, pretty good edges with a lot of weight on my hands, that feels really hard to me. And uh, I reached out to you guys and I actually bought a lattice rung, just a, you know, your hangboard that you sell. And this is before you had a shop on your website. I, you know, you connected me with Dale and I had to do a wire transfer. <laughs> he sent me this thing in the mail. It was great to look back at that. But I did the finger strength test. I think I tested my half cramp position on that 20 mil edge, one arm, and it was pretty weak. And I've tested it a number of times over the years and it still... At the time, I think I could hold about 80% of my body weight with my left hand, maybe 85% with my right. <clears throat> and since then, this is a, a longer story that many listeners will be familiar with, but my body's changed a lot. I've, I've put on some weight. I was kind of in a, a long, I'd gone through a long process of kind of uh, suppressing my body's natural set point, I think, and kind of fighting my body type to stay light for sport climbing. And nowadays I'm a little heavier and I'm trying to lean into being more powerful and stronger. And my fingers are still taking a lot of time to catch up. They've gotten a little stronger, but you know, I, I can maybe hold like 75% of my body weight with one hand on that 20 mil edge. And I'm back up to climbing, you know, 13C, 13D and like V10. And I remember from that email, I was looking at it again. I think you confirmed that like, yeah, you've, you've definitely got a lot of room for improvement there. And, um, 
people are always surprised when I talk about this because they're like, well, you boulder pretty hard, but I think I'm, like I said, I think I've always really struggled with that kind of basic board climbing style. And I get by on using a lot of tricks, doing steeper climbs with compression or heel hooks and, um, you know, getting really clever with beta and things like that. I've always really struggled in the gym. I've always climbed a couple grades easier in the gym than I can climb outside where I can use more nuance and, and beta. But I've done a lot of hangboarding and I just, I just feel like I've really struggled to make much progress in raw finger strength, especially when it comes to like a half crimp position on a 20 mil edge, for instance. And you know, we can keep this as global or as broad as you would like. Uh, you know, for, for a little more context, I'm living in a van. I'm on this road trip. I'm making the podcast. I get to climb outside a lot. I would love to continue focusing on practicing climbing and putting my focus into my outdoor climbing days. And I think I still have so much to learn as far as getting better at climbing, you know, I'm climbing in Utah right now and getting used to climbing on slippery, steep limestone with these polished footholds is really different. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, tons of room for improvement with that sort of stuff. But I'm wondering if there's any maybe foundational principles that you've learned through testing so many clients and working with people on their finger strength, you know, principles that I've maybe missed that, or that a lot of people commonly miss, is there a way to, you know, I have a hangboard here in my van. Is there a way to kind of invest in some training over the long haul so that maybe five years from now I can finally hang body weight with one hand? Um, I'd love to hear you kind of talk me through this and whether that's even a good goal or whether I'm, you know, obsessing too much over the numbers. I'd love to hear how you would think about all that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, a, a bit, big topic for a start. Um, so, I just threw a ton at you. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the first thing to say is that um, I, I note what I've, what I do a lot with, with clients and, and I always try and teach our coaches here to do exactly the same is when we're communicating with our athletes, whether it's in person or, you know, via email is I try and ask them to try and pick up on communication cues that come from the person when they're telling you about their goals or their training habits. And when I was just chatting, listening to you talk then, one of the first things that I just went, eh, 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 oh, I just noticed that. <laughs> I need to like remember that in the back of my mind was that you came out with a statement, I am focusing on my outdoor climbing. And then coupled with that, you asked about how can I make improvements in my finger strength? And this is something that I've struggled with for a long time. Yeah. So my first thing that I will have a good chat with any individual is that if you're something that you've struggled with for a really long time, it's not going to be easy to solve. That's generally a, a given. Hmm. And secondly, is that if you're going to get on with it, it normally has to become a focus. So you have to have a chat around whether you're prepared to make it a focus in the first place, because it could actually be the chat, you know, like I could be training you and right now we sit down and after 15 minutes, you go, you know what, Tom, everything you've told me here about how fingerboarding now has to become my focus of my true, like hundred percent quality energy here for the next six months that doesn't fit fit right with me. That's not cool. 
I'm still too interested in climbing. So actually, finger strength and hangboarding is not going to truly be my focus. So therefore, I'm just going to go to like just chipping away at it slowly and I might work at it in a different manner. So that's the first thing to kind of just say that you should always do from a coaching perspective and just spot those kind of cues of behaviors that aren't complementary. And then secondly, for anyone that like out there listening is to try and just look at your own uh, behaviors and see whether they're compatible with things. Because I did the same where I'd always go, I'm so weak. Why do I never get up at anything really hard on boulders? And then I go, okay, what do I do all the time? I put all my love and energy and focus and obsession into big, long roots and getting really pumped all the time. I love that. I love the fight. And how much do I ever go and try really hard, short boulder problems, for example? Um, so that's a really important thing to put into it. And then secondly is if you're talking about how you actually make improvements over time and whether it's worthwhile and whether it can be done is on the, is it worthwhile front? I would always tend to argue as long as it's motivating for you, you enjoy the process. It doesn't, you know, you know, kill your love for the sport or for anything like that. It is worthwhile because even if you are a climber who hangs just 75%, but you're still getting up a 14A at 75%, is that if you can get yourself to 80%, I will put good money that that extra 5% will give you the next grade, if not two above where you are. You've wow. already got all the tools developed to complement the strength that you already have to get you up things. That's brilliant. You're like a one percenter in terms of probably tactics, psychology, approach, confidence, uh, movement skills. So you're eking the absolute maximum out of the physical ability you have in terms of that finger strength. Amazing, great efficiency. So get the kind of the engine going, the finger strength part, the next lot, it will transfer in every time. That's, like this. I've seen that like across every age group, gender, sports specialization it, it's it, it works it's like a truism within climbing and training um in terms of the methods that you use i would say what i've seen be the most effective is outdoor climbers who spend quite a bit of time like focusing on you know getting the real thing done and they like projecting and they like having you know especially like van life or going on long extended trips is that they seem to do well by having focused, concentrated periods across the year where they align bad conditions or, you know, long nights or not being able to get to a certain area for a few months with periods of training where they really focus on the type of training which changes the longer last lasting physical effects mm. uh, that play out in terms of strength. So what I mean by that is that when we do strength training, there's a whole number of different components to it. And, you know, just from a really basic sense is that you have the ability to change the muscle tendon structure to be, uh, to have adaptations which are longer lasting um, and they will have strength gains. And then you have ones that have neurological changes where you might change, see changes in things like recruitment. So they're sort of firing patterns in terms of the muscle, which are shorter. Coupled together, they're really effective and they, they play out great on rock, but one comes quickly, but also kind of goes quickly. The other lasts a good long time, but takes time to work on. 
and has to play out over you know multiple months and seasons so i'd encourage those types of climbers like you to work on that type of training and not always to go for the kind of the recruitment style training where you're like oh quick gains great i just gained x amount by doing this feel great about it but then three months later it's all gone again Mm. Um, i think that's the trick in terms of how that type of climber approaches their climbing overall people who are into training all the time and like complementing that with performance all year long you can take a very broad approach and do lots of different things interesting Okay. So I want to dig into the logistics of that a little bit. So what does that mean for me? I mean, I guess I have kind of uh, two different paths ahead of me. I'm wondering if there's a way to, you know, have finger strength as a priority over a very long term, like a five-year plan. Can I like pick away at that by doing a fingerboard session every climbing day before climbing, put that as my focus. Maybe I'm climbing it 80, 90% of my potential because I'm a little bit fatigued, but I'm building that finger strength over time. Or would it be better to have this dedicated uh, chapter of each year, like you were describing, where the conditions aren't great anywhere, you know, summer comes to mind, where it's just not really that good anywhere in the in the lower 48 here in the States. Um, so maybe I set aside a a chunk of time to dedicate to training in that scenario, how much time would be required to really make those lasting gains that you're describing versus just tapping into the neurological thing and getting a quick bump? Yeah. So, so I'd say it it was going to like very roughly ballpark it, um, in the times, the the times of the year where you're kind of putting in more dedicated training time and you're really trying to work for like longer lasting gains uh, in terms of, you know, like what's going on with the forearm. Let's just take out the other parts of the body just to not complicate things. Mm-hmm. Is that I think during the training time, you're talking, roughly speaking, probably around four hours across the week of kind of reasonably dedicated time looking at what's going on with the forearm um, across that week. And that's going to be, good quality work it's got to have a degree of focus and energy towards it and then during your season where you're climbing more i think you can easily spread it out into maybe one hour across the week Hmm. of some quality uh, kind of complementary work that goes in with your climbing outside but means you have a degree of constant micro adaptation or conditioning that sets you up so that when you come back round to a training season, you're in quite a good position already for that training response, because there's definitely a difference between training stimulus and going outside and climbing on rock stimulus, even if it's hard, it's just different. I've seen this so many times people go, yeah, but I just spent two months trying really hard stuff all the time. And I just went to the gym for two weeks and I'm destroyed. And I didn't feel like it was that hard. I'm like, it's a different stimulus. You know, it's just no two bones to it. So I think it's maybe, yeah, like a four to one ratio, more or less for that kind of on season, off season. And I think you could get away with that and I can think you could make that effective. Mm. Um, but the caveat is that's to say that's away from like other work that you might do around, you know, general climbing, you know, conditioning, um, mm. core, lower body, et cetera. Okay. And in that example, how long is that off season? Is there like a minimum amount of, time six weeks or three months or how would you think about that always always depends on the individual 
Yeah. Um, and this depends on the individual just in terms of genetic makeup, but also individual in terms of training history as well. There's a big difference in my mind between one, a climber that's got to, let's just take everyone just talking about a climber that's got to 513, for example. There's a big difference between a climber who's at 513 after three years and is 20 years old and a 513 climber who's at 513 after 15 years and it's also 20 years old. There's like mm. a massive difference between those two. You cannot train them in the same way. And of course, that adaptation to that will be different. Likewise, there's a very big difference between someone who's at 513 and they're 45 years old versus someone that's at 513 and 25 years old. Um, so there's, there's uh, and this is where it like, and I kind of like sometimes find it frustrating when I do things like podcasts or I'm trying to help the <laughs> social media team here write something for like a social media post because I want to give people like answers. Yeah. But so much of the time it just requires going through and going with someone like, well, what's been going on? What have you done over the last five years? What have you done in the last six months? And kind of matching stuff up. And I suppose the one rule, like generic rule that you can kind of stick with is say, for every climber out there, if you're thinking about what you want to do now, whether it's on season or off season, is look really carefully at your training history over the last six months and be really careful to make sure that the training load that you now do, whether it's on season or off season, and that's the frequency and the volume, or the, or the, sorry, the volume and the intensity, is make sure that that matches up fairly closely to that recent training history, no matter how psyched you are, because you just will get suboptimal response from your training, whether that's no response because you didn't do enough or you get a terrible response because you did way too much because you were so psyched. Hmm. You just read like an amazing article or listened to an amazing <laughs> podcast. And you're like, I'm on fire. I'm going for this now. And then it's all just too much. You've got you to gotta respect it. It's, it's really important. That's a that's a really great answer. That makes me want to ask the question. This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and it keeps coming up on the show. To what extent should we all be trying to grow our capacity for more training? Is is that a good goal for most people? I mean, I've and I ask this because I've actually ha I have quite a few friends who have done your assessments and have tried the Lattice Light program or who have had programs from you. And uh, a theme that I seem to have noticed is that a lot of them are surprised at how much volume they're getting from your programs. And there's this tendency these days, you know, everyone's kind of really dialing in on quality over quantity, which I think is great in principle. But, you know, if you're climbing two or three days a week for an hour, there's probably a lot of room for growth there as far as building your capacity. So how would you think about that as far as coaching a client are you trying to slowly grow their capability to to do more training in a week over the years or is everybody different how do you think about that there's always some degree of difference and in individualization in it but i would say as a sort of resounding principle it's good to generally build you know resilience or work capacity in any athlete over time because it builds in a long-term resilience to the increased training loads that will occur if you work with that person in it on a long term and they get higher or closer and closer towards their genetic potential. So 
it become you basically get sort of like uh, I suppose an effect of decreasing retaining retraining returns on investment put in over time. So you mm. have to be increasingly resilient to the training work or capacity or training loads that you put in over time. And because as a coaching organization, we are quite invested in like the long-term growth of individuals and the, the industry as a whole is that we try to go into it with that approach rather than going in with people and just going, ah, oh, let's just have like hammer out a quick short hit and get, you know, like a mega peak or mega gain out of you in a really short period, but then leave you in a position where really you've probably not really laid any sort of investment into your long-term self over the next couple of years. So I would say that that is important, albeit also to reflect on the fact that it depends also on discipline, how much bouldering you're doing versus route climbing. Are you a route climber, which has got a history of doing a lot of volume? So sometimes a lot of people have got that work capacity already in there, so they don't need to do it. Um, other people have just got barely any at all. So we really need to you know, put some time into that. And it's... Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be variable to some extent, but I also see very good returns from taking that approach with mm. people long term. And we've worked with a lot of people over multiple years, um, so we're you know we're quite into that. Not just, I mean, I, I know some people don't have the budget or the ability to be able to work with us for more than three months or six months, and that's that's fine, absolutely fine as well. But I love, you know, working with someone for three years, five years and go, this is so cool what we built here. That's what we really love doing. Hmm. Amazing. <clears throat> um, I have a few questions from listeners that I want to jump into, but I have one final hangboard question that just came to mind. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're thinking about um, tapping into those shorter neurological gains versus making longer uh, muscular and tendon adaptations that are more persistent, are there different go-to protocols? Is that even a good question? There's so many different approaches out there. Are there any principles to be thinking about as far as what we actually do on the hangboard to achieve either of those goals? Yeah, so I was, uh, if you kind of are gonna broadly break it down, if you want any kind of um, hangboard protocol, which is going to work harder. So remember, this isn't like a binary thing that you you don't, do any training stimulus and go, oh, you just get one response from this. It's not like that. People like do stuff where they go, oh, I did an aero cap session. All I'm going to get from this is an increase in, you know, capillarization, for example. It, it doesn't work like that. I promise you. It's there's a focus or an emphasis on a certain adaptation you get from something. Mm. So if we go down the sort of neurological um, recruitment element of things, um, and keep on that side of things, then what we're looking looking at there is stuff where we're doing very high, close to maximum, so like one rep max, maximal intensity work for a short duration, anywhere between two to five to seven, perhaps 10 seconds of hangs, somewhere in that kind of 90 to 100% of one rep max. And the higher you go up into that intensity element, the more you're going to see that over a more structural change in terms of the muscle. Again, if you do any work on uh, like minimal edge training, you're going to, it's like a little bit more related to sort of RFD, so rate of force development. 
there's some kind of skill work there, um, sort of speed of recruitment work. Hmm. Uh, and you're going to see a neurological adaptation from doing that as well. Uh, I see people quite often complain about how they do a period of minimal edge training for two months and they get really, really strong in these small edges. And then they stop for two months and they come back and they've lost, they feel like they've lost everything. They're like, All my strength's gone. Like, well, not strictly speaking, that's not true. It's just you've lost an aspect of your training. If you go back into that style again, it'll come back. It's easier come, easier go. Hmm. So that style of work. Um, and then um, what you might term as like recruitment pools. So really fast uh, rate of force development sort of activation, whether it's, and typically people do that with their feet on the floor um, or very strong climbers like hooks under a bar where you go, you know, high intentional pulls, no activation, zero, zero, and then just go boom, like full in as hard as you can, um, pulling on whatever grip type feels appropriate for you to be able to do that. And then secondly, is if you're looking at structural changes in the muscles, then you're going a little bit further down the spectrum in terms of the intensity elements. So working further down towards 80, 70, 60% of one rep max. And one of the key aspects in this is, is you um, approach uh, what you term in the kind of scientific literature as volitional fatigue. So that tiredness or fatigue or going close to failure or to failure element, and you see more of a structural change there. And then again, also is working on what is kind of commonly termed in the literature nowadays, uh, or if you see on social media, like Tyler Nelson's done some really good work on this, is stuff around the kind of long duration density density hangs. Okay. Um, and again, you'll, you'll see changes um, in that structural property of the soft tissues and how that relates back into um, strength gains as well. So that's mm. your kind of... Uh, broad spectrum of what you're looking for that i actually wrote an article on this for rock and ice um that looked across all the sort of areas of strength um improvements that you can have um i think i think i wrote slightly a shorter article article on rock and ice and there was like five areas i covered and then i wrote an even longer one on our blog which maybe had seven areas of strength you can look at um it's, it's actually a reasonably broad uh, subject area and people go Oh, it's just hypertrophy, for example, or it's just recruitment. It's not. There's a whole number of adaptations in terms of strength. Deal with them all and get really good at understanding how to do it. And you've kind of got the magic there in terms of building good athletes long term. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I'll be sure to find those and I'll link to those articles in the show notes. Um, would repeaters kind of fall under the, a similar umbrella as the longer density hangs or are those accomplishing different adaptations? Yeah, so, so repeaters is that that comes to that kind of volitional fatigue um, element. So you're seeing failure or high levels of fatigue, um, and you're going to see a hypertrophy response from that. So a change in muscular volume um, or cross-sectional area in the muscle, and you change that cross-sectional area in the muscle, then you have the potential for generating more force through the muscle. Great. Okay. Thank you for all that. Um, no, no I have a few. Uh, I have a few listener questions. Do you have a few more minutes? I know we're getting close to your cutoff time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, I've got a lot, but maybe we can do another round to to answer more of them. We definitely don't have time for all of them here, but these ones I I think are too good to to pass up, or they're too relevant. Uh, this one is from Sarah. She writes, "I've often heard that new climbers should just climb. Obviously, trying a variety of styles and techniques for, you know, three to five years before they start training. I'd like to hear Tom's opinion on this. Does he agree? 
Does it vary from climber to climber? What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I'm probably going to be really controversial here. <laughs> I kind of suspected, which is why I was curious to hear your thoughts. And I'm, I'm absolutely prepared to stand by this as well. And, I, and I, I'll bring on the roasting that happens on social media. Um, Perfect. I say this is absolute nonsense. Um, mm. I don't normally go and I, I see this written on social media and different places about like, you should just go climbing. But I don't do it because I don't actually really like getting into like people get really antsy if you kind of go into hard with stuff on social media. So I tend to like lead discussion within our own platforms. Yeah, it's but a I terrible think... place to have a nuanced conversation. <laughs> yeah, social yeah. media is not uh, a good platform for that. So I get what people are saying when they say that say that, but it's not true from my perspective because. There's, to me, there's so little argument to say, why would you have someone who is interested in a long-term career progression? I, I know like, I use career in a really uh, broad way, like just involvement in a sport over 10, 20, 30 years, is why would someone not look after the general physical profile and conditioning of the soft tissues involved with that sport and build a reasonably decent, robust engine and, you know, work capacity and ability to be able to deal with lots of planes of movement and volume and intensity so that they can spend a long lifetime in the sport. And it's not to say that training is just going to the gym and doing pull-ups. I call effective training really just the structuring of volume and intensity. So training can be done outside. It can be done on the floor. It can be done at the crag, at your gym, on your moonboard, on a pull-up bar, all those things. It's just a logical, structured way of controlling those for a long-term aim or benefit. So yes, the beginner climber should spend the vast majority of their time just going climbing, building up movement skills, because that's a stimulus and they're going to see an adaptation from it. But it absolutely makes sense in my mind that someone who wants to be in it for a good amount of time and also make themselves more injury robust will do some form of complementary strength and conditioning work with it. Do they need to do five, five sessions of hangboarding a week? No, they definitely don't. Do they need to do hardcore TRX three times a week? No, they don't. But they can do complementary work and it will make them so much stronger and better and more fulfilled in terms of their performance element and their health and injury robustness in the long term, and I absolutely stand by that. Hmm. Fantastic Sorry. rant over. It's great. No, I can tell you, you, uh, I can tell you've encountered this question before, and, and uh, yeah, that that's really fantastic. Thank you, thank you for all but that. I, but I get what people are saying when they say that, uh, and I, I and I, I agree in the sentiment. Don't don't start climbing as a newbie. And start spending 80% of your time training. And like, I mean, we get it all the time in our inbox where people go, I've just started climbing and I've been climbing two months. Um, I'd love to do a training plan with you. How do I do this? And we're like, we're not the right location for you. Mm. Come come back to us. We and like, and from that perspective as well, is that we don't offer a just strength and conditioning plan that's complementary to beginner climbers to be done in conjunction with all of their kind of unstructured work that they do at the wall. We've talked about it quite a lot and I think it is a good idea, 
but we don't do that. So we don't work with people in that way. Mm. Got it. Okay. So I, uh, I recently did an episode with Steve McClure and you had him on as well. And I really enjoyed your guys' conversation. Uh, I reached out to Steve before talking with you to see if he had any questions for you. And he had a really good one. Steve writes, what is the most common physical weakness that Tom sees in root climbers that come to him for help in improving their standard? This could be finger strength, fitness, power endurance, overall strength, flexibility, etc. And then Steve also writes, I find it's almost always the power endurance. Many are strong enough, have decent fitness, but get pumped on the kind of routes they want to do, which are mostly hard sport climbs with punchy crux sections. So the older climbers who are fit from loads of trad or boulders who are strong, both end up fading and flopping with rock hard arms. Um, what, what, yeah, what are some of the biggest physical weaknesses that you see specifically in route climbers that come to you for help with their training? I would say probably two areas. Um, one is general volume base in their, in their climbing and their training. That's either that they've got a habit of just not doing any volume and they somehow hope that they're going to be fit by not doing any volume. And that's cool. Like, I mean, you can be unrealistic and, uh, and that, but that's a definite pattern in there. They, we just look at what have you done over the last one or two years? And they're just, really lacks any good quality breadth of volume. So all the way from, you know, moderately pumpy to very pumpy to just totally unpumpy climbing, if you're going to kind of take it into three different categories. So that's one area. And maybe also coupled with that is sometimes a misunderstanding in the clients that they had to have given it a decent number of years to be able to build that up. They do occasionally come to us with an expectation that they read something in a book or a method of getting an endurance fitness over six months. And then they're disappointed with how good they are right now. And you're like, oh, it just can't be solved in six months. We can carry on working with it, but it needs a bit more time. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's definitely a, a pattern there and a habit. And then I would say a lot of root climbers come to us with either the combination of weak fingers or the inability to exert or apply their finger strength on the rock because they don't go bouldering enough. Hmm. They just, they're only pulling hard is when they're pumped or trying a section between bolts. And I go, okay, you told me you just want to climb your first 513A. How many times a week do you go out and try boulder problems that are V789 and 10? And they're like, never i never climb a boulder problem harder than v4 and i do it once a week at max i'm like there's a problem <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. Oh, very common people people end up on either end of the spectrum it seems like this is a question from vj he asks say you plotted average finger strength relative to body weight versus climbing grade what might the curve look like? For example, is it logarithmic or is it linear? Um, what have you observed in your data? Did, you know, is there kind of a linear relationship between finger strength and climbing ability, generally speaking, or is does it have to be exponential to climb above a certain level? Uh, no, it's linear. Linear. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, and if you look at the data, um, there's the greatest degree of error at the beginning of the grade spectrum and right at the end and i think it's at the beginning because people have got a very undeveloped 
psychology, technique, tactics, it's just all over the place. Mm. And then right at the end, when people become highly specialized and have really honed down in areas. So we get people that come and climb 9A, but they only climb 9A in a certain style or they like mm. siege it for like 40 sessions or mm -hmm. they only climb at this crag. And we're like, and they'll come in, they're like, hey, I just climbed 9A off like way lower finger strength than you've ever seen before. And I'm like, great, but you're not a rounded 9A climber. You don't go to like Squamish, to Utah, to the UK, and also to Spain. And then <laughs> likewise, we see people who are really unadapted at that end, but they're just freakishly strong in terms of genetics. And you, you do see that a bit as well. Mm. Got it. This is a fun question for you. This is uh, from Lena. She writes, what is the favorite non-crack climb you've ever done? And also, what is the most horrible crack climb you've ever done? <laughs> favorite non-crack climb? Um, oh, I've done a lot of good face climbing over the years. I'd say probably my favorite experiences are from the sea cliffs in the UK. Hmm. And I've climbed a lot of really cool routes, like trad routes on sea cliffs. I've also really enjoyed a lot of the sport climbing in Spain, just tufas and climbing for miles and being really fit. Like that's great. Hmm. Uh, probably more enjoyable than crack climbing, to be fair. Um, <laughs> so yeah, definitely on that front. Uh, and then the other question was, what was what was the other question? What is the most horrible crack climb you've ever done? Uh, uh, pro uh, I don't know. Um, there's been a lot of like nasty ones. One that immediately rings a bell is one that I tried to do with Pete, which fit his fists exactly perfectly, but was slightly too wide for mine, but it was so flared that I couldn't do like wide pony style climbing. So it was just utterly impossible. He on-sighted it, gave it 12C. <laughs> I think I had five red points and couldn't get more than like a quarter of the way along and I just gave up. <laughs> that is a uniquely fascinating uh, experience, I guess, or, or a facet of trad climbing that's just, sport climbers can hardly relate to it, but that's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I liked her bonus question. She wanted to know, if you could put Jakob Schubert on any crack climb, which route would you choose? Oh, I'd love to see how he did on recovery drink. Hmm. No, no, I wouldn't actually. No, because I know he would do quite well on that. Uh, <laughs> no, I would love to see him on. Ah, but the thing is, if I put him on a proper crack climb, uh, I just know he wouldn't do very well because he doesn't know how to climb cracks like massively. Uh huh. I don't know. Uh, recovery. <laughs> I'll say recovery drink. Okay. For people that are curious, I'll find uh, the video for that and I'll link to that one in the show notes. Okay, this is final listener question for now. Uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Really fun chatting with you. And I think this one will lead into uh, to some other things that you've been working on. And I know there's another topic you wanted to touch on before we get off here. So uh, this is from Nick. He writes, you and Pete seem to have the ability to simultaneously work your asses off and be really goofy and laid back, not really seem to take things too seriously. Do you see these attitudes as being opposite and if so do you feel the need to flip a switch from one to the other or do they actually help each other in some way um i would say they probably help each other because 
uh, one thing that I've always been quite committed towards doing is mostly filling my life with stuff that I really enjoy. Um, so it, it's, and I would say Pete is also very similar, is that we both work quite hard. We climb quite a lot, train hard, and but we go at it for, you know, a greater part of our waking day as such. And it's easy to do that in a way when you really, really love it. So I have, you know, got so much reward and return out of going climbing over the years. And I love doing that. I really, really enjoy the entrepreneurial aspect of life and mm. running, starting, founding businesses also is just as enjoyable for me. So I find myself really easily getting involved with it because I love it. So I would say the the kind of the goofiness and the silliness that you see come out of me and Pete is just a complimentary blend between us two that we're very much like that. And we're like that whether we were climbing or whether we're working together or getting a train down to London. It, it's <laughs> like we just happen to have those personalities. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it really comes through in all the stuff that you put out there. That's great. Um, with that, I'd love to ask about your newest project, uh, this this talk show that you're doing. Can you tell me about that and how that came about? Oh, uh, yeah. So, th so this is the um, Late Night Climbers show. So th this is through a, a platform called The Climbers Crag, which I um, sort of co-founder, co-wrote owner with um, a guy called Sam, um, which is basically a an online climbing community um, across all the different social media platforms. And what I really love about this location concept idea is that I've seen over the years, the climbing community move from, you know, pubs and bars from before the 2000s to then going very online and being on forums and, and things like that to now being very, very active on in social media in a social space. And it kind of went through this period where I felt like it didn't really have a soul because no one was connecting properly in one location. And I like this idea of gathering social communities in one spot and giving an online social community. So like very much this like social thing, you know, a, a package of just good entertainment or content or conversation that goes on in one location and the whole thing of like starting up this show that goes on youtube um uh, every i think it's like three times a week that it goes out is that i like the fun entertainment like chat style to climbing and i'm not like all about like serious stuff and i've been really lucky and privileged to be able to meet lots of really well-known climbers over the years so i kind of connected it and we're like what would I like to watch? I would love to watch a climber just chat to loads of well-known climbers, but not about like they're just the most sick thing that they ever did or, <laughs> you know, about their hangboard score, which I know we've just gotten chatted about and is interesting its own, but I just want to like put them through like a miserable situation of like total <laughs> embarrassment or you know, like ask them about a load of funny stuff or just do challenges. Cause I think it's not, it's funny. I like it. And I think it's good to show off that other side of climbers because it's not all pro and serious. Can you share some examples so, of fun moments from that, of, of uh, people you've talked to, of some of the episodes that you've put out recently? Give a little taste for people. 
Yeah, so I think, um, so the first one that um, we ever did was a, it was with Kyra Condi, Alison Vest, and, um, you know, my client partner, Pete. And we did this kind of like partner style quiz challenge. And we ran it like, you know, when people get married and you have the bride and the groom and they go off and they have their special night, like with their all their friends before they get married, and they do this thing where they like ask each other questions about the other half. And they're supposed to know all the questions because that's like proving how in bed they are with the other person, how well they know each other. <laughs> I thought it would be kind of cool to run a quiz between me and Pete showing how well we knew each other, almost like husband and wife. And then Kyra <laughs> and Alison like going head to head against us, proving how much they were great partners. And we just had so much fun going through these like silly questions of like, who really knows each other the best. And it's just really funny. And like in that one, we just pipped into the post and won that one. But then we (laughs) went against last week, we went against Magnus and his girlfriend, Marta. Mm. And they absolutely rinsed Pete, me and Pete. They just like cleaned (laughs) up against us. And And we were like, we know each other really well. And they just, perfect partners. They know exactly what's going on. It's really funny, really in- interesting. <laughs> that is amazing. I will find the links for both of those. The one with you and uh, Allison and Kyra, and then the ones with you and uh, like Magnus. I'll, I'll link to all those in the show notes. That's that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. L- let me know if you ever have a really great partner that you want to come onto the show with us. And uh, me and Pete <laughs> will take you and someone else on. Okay. <laughs> I would love that. That sounds like an absolute blast. What are some of the other... Uh, topics or um games or, or things that you've done on the show so far um so we also do this thing called uh the wheel of shame uh <laughs> is a segment where um we go through our phone books and you have to scroll through the phone book and you sort of like you say stop to the other person and then you pick a famous climber who's nearest to where their finger stopped in the phone book and they have to ring the person up and pitch some ridiculous embarrassing idea to them um so so for example, like we had, <laughs> I remember Alison had to admit that she'd stolen some gear off Sean McColl, which she hadn't. <laughs> and she had to just like come out to it and admit it. Um, Magnus had to phone this uh, really famous YouTuber and admit that he'd spent a load of money on a credit card that he'd nicked from him. Um, and he didn't think he could get a refund on it. Pete had to ring up Hazel Finley and ask her whether she would go to Alaska and try like a double clutch dino boulder problem that Paul Robinson had put up and whether she wanted to go on a trip with him. (laughs) And just like, just ridiculous things that you're just crying with laughter because everyone's so embarrassed. And, you know, like all these people are like elite performers and they're always in their zone and they're Mm. very confident, but you put them totally outside their zone. It's it's funny. (laughs) That sounds like an absolute riot and I can't wait to watch. So much fun. Tom, is there anything else that you're up to that you want to share with people? Other places they can find you, follow you, see what you're you're up to? No, I think, uh, I mean, I was going to say, like, I I normally just get confused with my life of what's going on. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I I just know that it's like (laughs) 6.20 p.m. on, I think it might be a Thursday today and me and you are chatting. Um, (laughs) And it's been great. Like, I've really enjoyed doing this um, (laughs) and chatting to you. And yeah, if you you ever want me to come back and like go over all the things that we missed out on, I feel like we didn't get through 
enough in a way because there's so much stuff that comes down to training um, i'm always happy to do that and um and if people like want to get stuff to do with training knowledge and stuff i would say the probably the number one place to go for from like my side of things is just go to our youtube channel hmm. i think it's got like a really really broad set of stuff on there all the way from like just coach chat to exercise drills to stuff around flexibility how to train your planning sorry how to plan your training and just go there it will signpost you to pretty much whatever you you want to find mm. yeah that's an incredible resource i'll be sure to link to that for people and yeah let's do it again i, I would love that i've got a bunch of uh, listener questions that were really good that we'll have to save for next time uh thanks to everybody who submitted questions uh tom one more question i always ask this of my guests before i let them go what is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately um i would say the ability to have absolutely amazing friends in climbing like i could not place a value on the people that i've met in this community it's just like an unbelievable pleasure because they're such great people like it's insane i don't think i will ever give up this life for hmm. any other version of my life because of what i've met in climbing so yeah incredible well, thanks for everything. This has been so much fun. Really appreciate your time today. And I look forward to round two sometime. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been really, really nice chatting. I've, I've really enjoyed it. All right. Cheers, man. Thanks. See you then. Bye. Like we do it, like we do it. We got.